0: Again, to the, the Bad Quaker podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Monday, May twentieth, two thousand thirteen. My name is Ben Stone, and this is podcast number three hundred sixteen. And I'm going to skip the announcements today and uh, jump right into the podcast. Recently, uh, syndicated radio talk show host Michael W. Dean was on a radio show on a station that covers a major part of California. And uh, the host of the show had invited Michael on um, onto his show to ask Michael about his ideology. Now, I wanted to uh, to kind of go over this. I'm going to be playing parts of the uh, 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 of the the talk that the two radio show hosts had, and I, but I want to get a couple things clear. First off, I'm not doing this to, you know, to try to pick apart what Michael said or try to embarrass him or try to say like, you know, you, you know, I could do this better than you or whatever like this, or I'm not going to say this is how, you know, this is how you should have done it or any, I'm not going to try to go back in hindsight in any way and, and critique Michael in in his discussion. And nor am I going to try to attack the the other host that had Michael on because uh, I, I don't think the guy I think the guy was perfectly honest I think he is confused about some things and I, and I'll get to that in a minute but I don't think he was being particularly uh, you know evil or bad or anything like that I think he uh, generally you know misunderstands um, Michael's Ideology and has a certain amount of uh, curiosity about it, but at the same time, his his misunderstanding is uh, of the idol- ideology is so flawed that it prevents him from actually thinking clear or even uh, entertaining any ideas and thoughts that are outside of what he already believes. So again, my my purpose is not to attack the radio show host, and it's not to try to correct Michael or say you know you should have done this or you should have done that. Because here's the thing: with when you call a radio station, um, even if you're a regular caller to a radio station, the radio station the 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 host of the radio show has uh, a, a mechanical advantage over the caller in the sense that if the two are talking at the same time the radio show host will always have the advantage. And it kind of has to be that way. It kind of has to be otherwise a radio show host would have his show basically taken over by callers. So the way that it's set up, uh, you know, mechanically speaking within the electronics of the actual business of, of doing a radio show, the host always has to have the, the sound advantage so that he can always go over the the, the the guest and so that he can always keep control of the show because for for if for no other reason the talk show host has a timer and he has this clock ticking all the time and he has to watch it and time exactly what he's doing with uh when the commercial breaks have to come in and all this kind of thing so uh so just to keep the uh, you know the situation professional the host has to behave in a certain way now that doesn't necessarily excuse this host for and, I, and I'll just kick this out before I even get into it. This host had a tendency uh, to do what you see this a lot with um, with status specifically. But they will, um, uh, in in speaking to someone who's you know liberty oriented, they will throw a question at you, and before you can deal with that question, they'll throw a different question at you, or um, what they'll. Very often do. And you'll see this in in forums and in chat rooms and things like this. They'll throw an argument at you. And as you begin to dissect that argument and make your case for what you believe, they will sidestep that completely and go to a different argument. They'll do that. Um, almost as a, as a knee-jerk reaction when they see that you actually have an answer for it. They would prefer, uh, in many cases, to change the topic rather than allow you the opportunity to flesh out an entire topic. So um, so this is a really common thing to do. And you hear it with a, in a radio situation like the one that I'm about to present to you. You hear it uh, quite a bit. This person, this radio host, uh, talks over Michael, uh, throws two or three or four questions at him at once. Before Michael can finish answering the first question, he'll cut him off and move on to three or four more questions. He'll set up uh, false scenarios where he's trying to get Michael. um, Well, I'll get into it, and then you'll see what I'm saying. Uh, But the main thing I wanted you to understand before I start this is that the purpose is not to tear down the radio host. And it's not to try to correct Michael or say Michael did anything wrong in it or anything else. Again, um, you really have to be sympathetic toward anyone in a, in a radio caller type situation where the radio station or the radio host has this massive advantage. And the caller is limited on wh- what he can say, how much time he has to say it, and, uh, and whether or not he's allowed to keep the conversation in context. Now, the first thing I want to point out as I start to play this – oh, 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 I want to give up one other disclaimer. When we get to the end of this, you're going to hear how Michael is just abruptly cut off. He's cut off literally mid-sentence. And um, this, this didn't happen because the radio host cut him off. This happened because uh, they lost connection. And the host even mentions – you'll hear it right in the beginning – the host mentions that they're having technical problems. And that uh, I was listening to this live when it when it took place actually, and I listened to the host for a while after uh, after Michael was off of the show, and uh, and and he was the the host was having technical problems, and so when when this ends at the very end, uh, you're going to hear what sounds like the guy just just hanging up on Michael, and that's not really what happened, but um, but it is true that uh, keep this in mind that the that the talk show host is actually the owner of this radio station, and he owns it for the purpose of pushing his own very liberal, very progressive uh, ideology onto uh, his audience. And so uh, keeping this in mind and keeping in mind that the show was very long, he could have – it was his choice. He could have had Michael on for like two hours. He could have had him on for a nice long chunk of the show – and he could have allowed Michael to explain himself on any of the questions that he throws at Michael. But for whatever reason, and I don't think it's necessarily an evil reason, but for whatever reason, he chose to use the method he did. And I think I think it's partially um, almost a natural reaction when you face the arguments of liberty uh, is to behave in this way. because I assume that because you see it so often. It's a really rare thing that a person will give an honest question to a uh, liberty-minded person and then wait and allow you to answer it and then not jump to a totally different thing. Like, uh, example, you know, um, well, who would build the roads? And if you start to go into who would build the roads, before you can flesh that thing out and get them to see that, yes, indeed, the roads would be built if there's a need for roads. Before you can get to that, they'll be throwing at you something about saving the children, or who you know, saving the whales, or or they'll throw something else at you um, before you ever before they ever allow you to back them into a situation where you have to admit that yes, indeed, uh, government is not necessary for roads or whatever you know, whatever the argument is at the time. Um, so now, when we start this, you're going you're gonna to hear the host, uh, he desperately wants and needs to put a label on Michael and say, Michael is product A. Um, and Michael is sharp enough that before the, before the interview actually started, Michael was certain to say, look, let me define myself. And so he starts this out with allowing Michael to, uh, to define himself. And uh, and so I'll, I'll I'll let it go with that, and let's uh, let's listen to what happens with this.
1: All right, Art, thank you so much for the morning show theme song. And uh, just speaking to my guest in this segment, Michael Dean, he was complaining about some of the audio issues. I made a couple of changes there, Michael. I hope it improves the quality for you. We've had a lot of tech problems, unfortunately, this morning. Your website, freedomfiends.com, freedom f w e n s. and you wanted to kind of define yourself before I did it, so go ahead, please.
2: Yeah, I used to live in uh, San Francisco Bay Area, loved it, lived there 16 years, moved to Wyoming four years ago because I like guns and lower taxes. Uh, If you wanted to define me on a left-right axis rather than a realistic axis, uh, for anti-war, legal drugs, gay marriage, Open borders and Internet freedom, I'm somewhere to the left of Nancy Pelosi. And for social welfare, I'm somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan.
0: Now, here's an interesting point. That's a really, you know, a a humorous thing that Michael has presented there. It's it's something that you can kind of giggle about and say, you know, uh, okay, now we've, we, you know, there's an old thing when you, when you um, if you if you take classes or go through any of the uh, teaching process that teaches you how to give a speech or how to teach a class or how to present yourself in public or so forth like that, they'll often tell you that the first thing you need to do is come out and, uh, uh, you know, uh, break the ice a little bit, have, have some kind of a little humorous thing to sort of lighten the mo the mood and and get everybody sort of on, you know, uh, uh, a little bit relaxed. Um, and, and that's what Michael has done here. He has uh, presented a very interesting thought in a somewhat humorous way. I'm left of Nancy Pelosi, but right of Genghis Khan. Who brings up Genghis Khan in a standard uh, conversation? But the thing that's notable about this is that the radio host doesn't, respond in any way to that statement. He either didn't get the joke or he wasn't listening or he is so hmm uh in such a way that how do I say this politely? Um well, I don't know that there is a way to say it politely. He's so self-absorbed that he doesn't uh that he doesn't possibly he doesn't see any humor. In, in a statement like that, because uh, I don't know. I, I don't know that that is the case, but that's a, p- a possibility. Anyway, so uh, let's continue here for a second.
1: Uh, all right, so let's talk about, uh, I guess, the, the, the sort of the overarchingness of your libertarianism. You would, uh, y- you don't want any rules at all, is that correct? I mean, are you an anarchist then?
2: I guess anarcho-capitalist, but I prefer the term voluntarist. And it's, uh, it's it, saying I don't want any rules is inaccurate. I, what I don't want is a monopoly system of violence, as Obama has defined it, and George Bush defined it. That's what they call government. A uh, monopoly of violence in a geographic region where they can come in and take whatever they want. Like, for instance, if your neighbor said, I wrote down on a piece of paper that you have to pay me 50% of your income, would that be ethical? No. But it's ethical when, pe- when people who are too stupid to rule vote in people to rule for them. I don't know how that works. but uh, I-
0: Okay, so what we see here um, is, like I said, the host uh, really, really wants a label to put on Michael. He wants to be able to have a, a recognized collective that he can put Michael into and say, oh, you're one of those guys, or you're like one of these guys. He, 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 the, the host desperately wants that. And when Michael doesn't give that to him, then he comes back in and attempts to put that label on Michael anyway. He tries to, he called him an overarching libertarian. He says, you don't want any rules. What are you, an anarchist? He's attempting, and I, I realize he didn't say it in that le- level of argumentation, but he's attempting to um, to to shove Michael into some kind of a collective. He's trying to fit Michael into something that he can label him and therefore deal with him, not as an individual. But once he can label him into one of these recognized collective groups, then he can say, oh, you're like Dick Cheney, or oh, you're like uh, uh, you know Clint Eastwood, or you're like this person, or you're like that person. And he can pigeonhole him into something, whether it fits him or not. And and this is the reason for this is not necessarily because the host is evil, it's because the host thinks this way. The host believes that um, that you have to put people into categories like that because he's a collectivist. I mean that's how his mind works. So uh, so Michael very carefully corrects him on this and tries to get him in the right direction as thinking that no look Michael is Michael and he's not some you know some caricature of a collective. And so now let's uh, listen to Michael's, uh, or let's listen to the host's response on that.
2: I guess that's what democracy is.
1: All right, so you, do, do you make any distinctions between a government that is indeed elected, that the people have a choice over whether they want it or not, they choose their representatives? Do you make any distinction, Michael Dean, and a tyrant, a king, a dictator? Is there any difference?
2: Actually, a lot of times kings were more ethical because they wanted to pass their kingdom on to their children, whereas elected officials come in for four years and promise away the future, steal, steal from the future, to stay in for four years and then leave. They don't...
0: Okay, so when Michael failed to allow himself to be labeled, um, the the host uh, just created that label for him and stuck him in it and just passed on. I mean, he just he just decided, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna label you anyway. And um, in in doing this, you know, uh, the the collective uh, collectivism, you in trying to get a leftist to see the problem with uh, with thinking in this direction, um, it it is very often possible. That if you can show them that thinking collectively like that, wanting to put everybody into a collectivist group and label everybody in that group according to a, a, you know, a, um, a prejudice, according to a prejudged uh, criteria, what you're doing is you're creating the basis of where we get racism, bigotry, all the negative things that, that liberals tend to hate, the liberal is guilty of it when you insist upon putting everybody into these collectivist uh, groupings like this. So, um, you know, we see this with people like, what's the name of that organization, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Group or whatever it's called, that will uh, take somebody like Ron Paul and throw them into the same classification as, you know, like um, uh, militant uh, militia types or uh, other groups like that. Well, what they don't realize is, They're actually using the tools that create uh, biases like racism and bigotry. They're using those tools themselves to classify people. Now, if you're making this argument with a right-winger, you have to go in the opposite direction because the the right-winger tends to already be accepting certain levels of racism and certain levels of bigotry. So instead of pointing out that, hey, you're moving yourself towards racism and bigotry with this kind of thinking – you reverse it and you say, that kind of thinking is collectivism. And you start to show them that this is this is the way people like Marx thought and how Lenin thought and how Stalin thought and, and how Mao thought. And you begin to teach the, the right-winger that he's actually guilty of thinking like a dirty commie. And if you can convince him of that without offending him, then it's a, a long ways toward winning the right winger over, and the same thing with the left winger, with the progressive or liberal or whatever. You know, and now I'm I'm classifying them the same way. I'm doing the same thing, but you get the idea that. Um, to break away from that and start to look at the individual and say, what do you believe as an individual? Not what do people like you believe, not what do your leaders tell you to believe, not not what uh, respected people who you look up to tell you to believe, but what do you really believe? And then you can break things down all the way and start taking things apart on a moral basis and find out where's the aggression taking place and what can we do about that. Okay, so then, anyway, so the guy sets up this false dichotomy. And he says, uh, um, an elected government uh, against a tyranny, which, you know, do you, can you at, lo- at least see the difference in these two things? Well, um, he says, and in reference to ele- elected government, he says, uh, you get a choice um, if they want to or not. Well, now that's just false. That's, that's absolutely not the way it is. Um, I don't think it's a lie on his part. I think he just hasn't thought the 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 thing through. Democracies, it's it's not like you have a choice to opt out of it. You um you we, we here in the United States, or if you're in Canada, or if you're in you know a uh, uh, European country, or wherever you happen to be, if you decide, it doesn't matter if you have elections or not. You might have any form of democracy. But if one day you just decide, you know what, I don't want to be a part of that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to. Uh, you you can't just opt out. That means it is a tyranny. Every democratic government that exists in the world today is a tyranny by its very definition. You can't opt out of it. So he tries to present this false dichotomy for for Michael and tries to force Michael into choosing one over the other. Um, and in doing so. Uh, he's actually just redefining what tyranny is like if tyranny is only a monop- uh, is only a, a monarchy um it like like we we have to make the assumption to start with that it can't be a, a tyranny because it's a democracy like there is no such thing as a tyranny uh that is a democracy well that's an absolute falsehood and Uh, To a large extent, it's a lie. All, All democracies, if they're based on aggression and force and you can't get out of it, then it's tyranny. And that's what every government in the world today is. Now, unfortunately, Michael, and again, I'm not doing this to criticize Michael or anything like that. And you always have to remember that it's really easy to sit at a computer days or weeks after something takes place and take it apart line by line by line and show where somebody could have done this or should have done that or whatever. But, uh, but Michael makes a, a mistake here in the sense that he, uh, he bites the bait in, um, uh, when he attempts to debunk this God of democracy by saying, well, you know, in many ways, uh, uh and he, and he, lay, he begins laying out, uh, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe's argument that in many ways, uh, a monarchy is better than a democracy. um, and he gives a perfectly valid explanation of why a democracy is not better than a monarchy. Uh, but the interview is already off track at this point. Uh, now, Michael uh, attempts to show the host that both the left and the right are the same, um, that have that same desire to dominate people and will use force to do so. Michael attempts to do this, but the host is not going to be caught with this. He's not going to be caught in that situation. So he, you'll hear it. He interrupts Michael. Um, because Michael's not playing along with his collective narrow and collectivist narrative, and then he—you'll—you'll you'll hear. Well, I'll go ahead and play it here. Let's hear the rest of it.
2: Have any accountability going beyond that? I'm not saying I like tyranny. I don't want a tyrant. I don't want a king. Uh, it's just different forms of guns being pointed to your head. And when I say guns pointed to your head, I mean to me. I listened to your show for an hour today. To me, you sound a lot like. Uh, Mitt Romney or George Bush. It, it's really almost indistinguishable to me. It's basically saying what people need to do, and both the left and the right statists do that, they say what people need to do, that comes out of the mouth at the beginning of almost, in some form, almost every statement made by a leftist or a rightist.
1: So and you don't believe... That so, but, so if I say... Well, let me just interrupt you for a sec. So if I say what we need yeah. to do is make sure that sick children have health care, you're saying we don't need to do that. If I say we need to make sure that people who have worked hard in our country their entire lives, maybe have served our nation in the military, we need to make sure that they uh, retire with and die with dignity, you're saying that's not an obligation that we collectively have. Is that correct?
2: Well, first of all, you're talking to someone whose only child died of cancer and suffered with the American health care system. And secondly, my stepson is in the Army. Um, I would not be against an incremental downsweeping of it to where you go, okay, well, there were some contracts made, they have to be honored, you know, vets have to whatever. Um, I really think that a lot of contracts that are made by governments, though, Are really immoral. I mean, some more than others. Like, basically, when you have people who in the free market would be paid a good wage, like, you know, teachers, trash collectors, security, I won't say police, but security, when you have those people like making, you know, four fifths of their wage until they're a hundred, even if they were fired for like sexually abusing somebody or shooting somebody and killing them when they weren't armed, I think that's unethical. And that happens all the time. But I don't want to
1: argue with any.
0: Okay, and now here um, the, the host decides to interrupt him again. Uh, he's, he's done several things. First off, uh, Michael wouldn't play along with the collectivist narrative uh, that he wanted him into. So the host changes the topic and uh, attempts to push Michael into defending a right-wing position. Uh, you know, think of the children. Oh, what about the sick children? We have to think of the sick children. This is a red herring, and it's an appeal to emotion. And he also throws out a straw man by saying, um, "You don't think we need to do that?" And he creates a simplified argument and dumps it on Michael. That's that's the uh, that's the uh, straw man argument that he makes. And then he goes on and again uh, trying to shift the the uh, argument and throw out another red herring. He goes talking about uh, people that worked hard, served the nation. They they have the right to retire and die with dignity. And it's the collective responsibility. Those were his words. Collective responsibility. Um, and and these fall onto the fallacies of begging the question, appeal to motion, uh, to emotion, and another false dichotomy. Now, um, if you could take any of these apart and you and you start to say. Okay, why do we have a collective responsibility if the individual doesn't have the responsibility? Why is there a collective responsibility for somebody else? What happens to the individual responsibility? And it's not hard to go through and take that apart, especially for me. You know, this is sitting here at my computer, not talking to a radio host, having all the time that I need pretty much to, uh, to take this apart and, and look at it. It's easy to do that. But when, when the conversation is rolling and you're getting these things thrown at you one right after the other, um, it's really easy to take the bait and try to, uh, you know, like in this situation, um, he, he threw some, some, uh, some possible avenues that Michael could have taken. Michael could answer the save the children red herring question. Michael could answer the collectivist responsibility, false dichotomy question, um, And and, But what does happen is if he doesn't answer these things that have been thrown at him, then it's going to look like he's trying to dodge the question. And you can bet your bottom dollar the host would point that out. Why aren't you answering the questions, Mr. Dean? He would do that because that's part of the process. That's how, you know, a quote-unquote, a a good radio host would uh, interview somebody who believes so differently than the host believes. So however you look at it in a situation like this, you're being set up to look bad, and and the host is narrowing it down by not allowing you to fully answer questions and by throwing multiple false questions to you, he's narrowing it down to a situation where you're going to be stuck looking bad almost no matter what you do. Okay, stick with me through this break, and I'll be right back, and uh, we'll get to more of this interview. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy. Amazon has great prices and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can even get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of Plus, it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give badquaker.com a tiny portion of the purchase price. It won't cost you any extra, but you will be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. So, let's get back to playing the uh, interview here, and you're going to hear the host interrupting Michael again.
1: Well, right, but 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 how can we not talk about the specific implications of your ideology if it were implemented? I mean, it's easy to just simply well, say can. we should I all can. be I totally can. free, but then let's talk about what that means when you say we should all I be can free.
2: Answer indiv- I can have an answer for individual talking points, definitely. However, and this this may sound like a cop-out to you, but... I am not the liberty, the libertarian-paradise central planner. I'm not the LibPair central planner. And there are people I can put you in touch with who do that all day and do it with a college professor level of precision. But I'm not the guy who's going to build the roads, you know?
0: I will. So uh, now I want to talk about the concept of turnabout. Um, Michael... Uh, <laughs> properly attempts to turn the conversation around. This is prior to this little segment that you just heard. Uh, Attempts to turn the conversation around, um, but that's the moment when the host interrupts him. And the host then does a turnabout. uh, The host turns the the conversation back around and says, no, let's cover specific uh, implications of your ideology. The problem with that is the host clearly doesn't, he hasn't taken the time to even make an attempt to understand the ideology. He has made several attempts to pigeonhole Michael, to uh, collectivize, to, to shove Michael into a collective ideology that the host already understands. But at no point is there any indication that the host actually has the slightest clue what Michael's actual ideology is. And he certainly wouldn't, up to this point, hasn't allowed Michael to answer questions. Uh, the, the, you know, a, a complicated thing like an ideology is not something you can spit out in a, uh, you know, a bumper sticker slogan. And evidently that's what this guy wants, as in, you know, the case with most people like this. They want a quick, you know, America, love it or leave it. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's good. We got to get behind that. Yeah, that's the way to go. So uh, let's go on from here and see see what goes on.
1: Well, let let, let uh, yeah, me just an uh, Let me set the table. We're talking, by the way, to Michael Dean. He is a talk show host. His show is Freedom Fiends. Freedom F W E N S dot com. Freedom Fiends. Now, presumably, you are a as you the, a libertarian, the way you describe it, practically an anarchist or a capitalist anarchist, because you believe that such a system, if it were implemented, would result in the greatest uh, good for the greatest numbers. Is that fair to say? Yes. Is there a way to... Yeah, uh, I don't like the word anarcho-capital... Okay.
2: Anarcho-capitalism, I mean, I I guess I am that, but to a lot of people that sounds like the two worst things combined. And Mm -hmm. what is called capitalism in America, the big business in America, is not capitalism. It's corporatism that wouldn't exist... Without government.
0: Now I'm stopping it here because we're about to hit a key moment. Michael is again trying to, ter- to clarify terminology. Uh, the host we've got we've got this uh, back and forth movement of, of each of them attempting to do a turnabout to bring the conversation back in the direction they want it to go. Michael wanting to explain his ideology, the host essentially wanting to um, you know to, to debunk Michael or shove him into a uh, an already understood. Um, uh, uh, label that the that the host can then deal with, so uh, what we 're about to hit at this point is a key moment, and what i 'd like for you to listen for the host presents a question hinting that Michael is delusional um, now here at this point, a turnabout is critical it 's a critical move. Uh, Michael needs to switch this right back around and put the question back on the shoulders of the statist you're going to hear the question and you'll you'll understand what i mean when you hear it here we go intervention
1: could you and be control. persuaded that you're wrong i mean is there any evidence any data any information that if you reviewed it could convince you no we really do need to join together and have elections and give the government the power to tax give the government the power to defend us with the military, give the government, which is ultimately us, the power to restrict people's rights, for example, to own weaponry. Is there anything that could convince you of that? Why is that? Why are you so absolutely, why are you so completely confident, certain that your way is the hmm. right way and every other way is wrong?
0: Okay, now um, this moment, as you could see there, he puts Michael in, he, he provides Michael this huge setup question with all of these uh, caveats attached to it. And he's trying to demand that Michael um, expose himself as being delusional. Uh, where, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is that the, the Michael's position, which is pretty much the same as I believe, our position is constantly changing. Uh, every time new information is introduced, we're more than happy to adjust what we believe. As a matter of fact, almost every voluntarist uh, that at least that I know of started out as a statist. Um, almost every I'm I'm saying almost everyone uh, in the voluntarist movement started out as some level another or of a statist, and they followed a logical path. Many times it took years, sometimes it was very rapid, but many times it took years of following one logical path after the next and re- to, until the point came that we realized that there is no such thing as a, um, as a legitimate government that's based on a monopoly of power, uh, on, on a monopoly of force. You just can't have a legitimate government that's based on a monopoly of aggression. You can't have it, and 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 this is not a position that we just came to overnight, or we were taught it by some holy man or whatever. And all of a sudden, we're not going to change one iota on what we believe. Um, that would be in the level of delusional. But when you put all these caveats on the question, um, it, Michael was given no other option but to say, you know, I, "I I'm not going to change my opinion that that uh, you know that aggression." is is bad i'm always going to hold the position that aggressive is bad i am not going to take the position that aggressive is good but it was a critical moment to turn this back on the host and say this is what you're asking me to define this is what you're asking me to agree to now do you think it's good when this and this happens do you think it's good is it justifiable to take from one person to give to another person. Is it justifiable under these circumstances? Can I rob a bank and then take half that money and go do something good with it and justify my robbing of the bank? And just and just put it right back on him, that turnabout right back on him um, to do that. But again, this is impossible when you have a radio host who is in absolute control of the conversation.
2: Because all government is based on aggression. It's based on people sitting down, of the people deciding what's right for 49% of the people and pointing guns at their head. I mean, when I say pointing guns at their head, and this is really important, the definition here of what a law is, would people say, oh, what everyone needs to do, you know, that usually results with sometimes education, sometimes outreach.
1: Well, you say what what everyone needs to do is get rid of government. You say what everyone needs to do is uh, keep... Uh, anyone from taking anybody's wealth, even if if there's a a question of whether that wealth was ill-gotten. How would you resolve disputes?
0: Okay, it's important right here to point out uh, again what the host has done. First, um, talking over Michael, interrupting him, not allowing him to finish his thought. Also, it should be clear at this point that the host is no longer interested in understanding the ideology. He's simply attempting to use Michael as a punching bag. He can hit Michael, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically, he can hit Michael, but Michael can't hit back. So when you have a punching bag, you have, you, you are no longer interacting on, a, on an equal basis, um, as two boxers would interact and, and spar, you're no longer doing that. All you're doing is punch, 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 punch. And that's the position that we've gotten into at this point in the interview. Michael is now just a punching bag for him to, to smack at. And as, as I play some more of it here, uh, what you're going to hear is the host will begin cherry-picking. He begins uh, ignoring the actual argument, throwing out red herrings, And and his distortions of history are just uh, amazing. Um, Let's—he he he actually goes into myth-making, and so I'm going to play this a little bit longer clip and uh, show you what I'm talking about.
1: But how would you? How would you resolve um, disputes? I can answer that. But
2: one thing is too. There isn't always an answer because no one's been allowed to try. I mean, we're basically talking science fiction, but that's what you guys do t- all 24-7 on your station.
1: Wow, you're really angry. Well, what's the science fiction? See, I just, that's absurd, and, and let me show you why. Because there are lots of countries that we can look at that do certain things better than we do, and there are other countries that don't do them as well, and there are things that we do in this country extremely well. We can also look at history and say, hey, when we implemented these solutions, they were uh, useful. They made things better. When we implemented the 40-hour work week, it improved the quality of life for Americans uh, throughout this country. When we had the federal government stick a gun to the head of slave owners and said you don't get to own other people, that made our country a better place.
0: Okay, now I have to interrupt these two uh, really uh, crazy points that he just made. Uh, One of them is uh, he's essentially... um, He's essentially allowing the progressives to take credit for the 40-hour week. Now, I've gone into this before. The 40-hour week, without getting into a two-hour history lesson on how this came about... That wasn't the best thing for all people. It's still not the best thing for all people. And as a matter of fact, I have made the argument in the past and will stand by this: that the forty-hour work week is slavery. It is slavery. Just you know, Michael's making the argument in, uh, or attempting to make the argument that the taxation is slavery, but the forty-hour work week absolutely is slavery. Now, um, I'm just throwing that out at this point. But like I said, this is a I could I should I, I really that's a topic I really should uh, cover again. But um, but without getting into it too much, uh, my grandfather is a great example of this. My grandfather worked for the N N W Railroad uh, when he was a young man, and um, the the way that they would do uh, the way they would hire the guys, y- you would just show up at the uh, uh, at the repair station where where my grandfather worked. And if they had work that day, you would work. If they didn't have work that day, then you wouldn't work. Now there were some days that you didn't go down there and show up because you had other things. My grandfather lived on a farm, it was an active farm, it fed there a very large extended family. So there were days there were times where he would go weeks without going to the N and W to work because he was busy on the farm. And then when things would get caught up, he'd go down to the N and W and see if they had work for him. And on a day that they had work, um, there was no guarantee if it was going to be one hour, three hours, five hours, or 15 hours. There was no guarantee. There was work for people who were there and would work. And when the work was done, there was no more work. Now, this was uh, really convenient for the lifestyle that my grandfather lived, and it was really convenient for the NNW Railroad. Uh, it satisfied both of them very well. But then the unions came in. And the unions forced the N&W Railroad into this 40-hour work week. And in doing so, the N&W had to stop hiring as many people as they had hired in the past. And the only way you could work for them is if you agreed to be there every single day, five days a week, working eight hours a day every single day. And if you weren't there, you were out of a job. You no longer work for the N&W. and And by doing this, it completely disrupted my grandfather's lifestyle. Now he had to be at work every day. He had to go down there. He didn't have a choice. And it didn't matter what was happening on the farm. He had to go to work. You see, it created a slave out of him. He had no choice in the matter. He didn't ask for the 40-hour week. He didn't like it, but he got it anyway. And that was a gift to him by the government and the unions. And I'm not saying that to be anti-union. I'll get into that some more in a minute. But let's go on and hear some of the more of the fantasy here. Like the fantasy he just threw out that the federal government stuck a gun to the head of slave owners and said, you don't get to own other people? That is a complete fantasy of what happened. Keep in mind, chattel slavery was only possible because of government. Without a territorial monopoly on violence, slaves would just leave. Uh, it was in the Constitution of the United States. That's what made slavery the law of the land in North America, or at least within the confines of the United States. The Constitution of the United States put slavery as the law of the land. And, and later on, it was the fugitive slave uh, laws that forced non-slave states within the United States to return slaves, and it would punish anybody who assisted the slaves. This is the federal government enforcing slavery, not only on people in the South, but on people in the North who not only didn't want anything to do with slavery, but who wanted to actively help slaves get their freedom, and the federal government punished those people for it. Now, this is the actual history. This is not something that somebody just makes up out of their, uh, you know, because they were told it in, in government schools. This is actual history that's easy to, uh, to check out. Let's hear a little bit more of, of this nonsense.
1: When we went to factory owners, Michael, and we said we stuck a gun to the head of the factory owner or the mine owner and said, you can't stop your employees from organizing, that made our country better. And if you want to argue that, then we can look at the metrics. We can look at the amount of income that people were able to keep for themselves after the government did that. We can look at whether people were subject to being raped and having their fingers chopped off if they didn't obey the massa before and after the federal government uh, went to slave owners and said oh, you can't oh, do yeah. that anymore, oh, okay. isn't
0: Okay, again, um, without a territorial monopoly of violence, uh, there would have been no slavery in the United States. It just wouldn't – it couldn't have uh, functioned. Uh, Here's another thing to think about, and I I did a whole series on police, and I intentionally left this part off, uh, not because it – It detracted any from my point, but it didn't necessarily serve my point and it wasn't uh, a part of the the actual um, storyline that I was trying to point out when I did the series on police. But the very first form of police in North America were what were called slave patrols. Slave patrols were made up of conscripted white men. Now, just think about that for a minute. Slave patrols were made up of conscripted white men. These were white men who were forced by law to go from town to town and from farm to farm enforcing what were called the Black Codes. So what you've essentially done is here, you have enslaved white men. When the government forces you to do labor, when the government forces you, when and anytime you have conscription, you have slavery. So the government would force white men to go around and enforce the laws against black people, and this was happening well before the Civil War. And the really nasty part about this is that one of the jobs of the slave patrols was to uh, actually go to slave owners and make sure that they were uh, punishing their slaves harsh enough. And if the and if the slave patrols didn't feel that the that the slave owner was punishing his slaves enough then they would uh, go in and punish the slaves to the extent that they felt comfortable doing it. Um, some things uh, that, that were in the Black Code uh, that, that I, I guess it's not taught at all in schools about the Black Codes, but uh, some of the things that, that were in the Black Codes, um, it, it, they denied uh, blacks, all blacks, free or slave from traveling without papers, from possessing any weapons, again, uh, free or slave, could not possess weapons and could not travel without papers identifying who they were and whether or not they were slaves. They denied uh, free blacks from living in places like Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and other places like that. Um, that's what the Black Codes did, and these were enforced by law by the slave patrols. And this is government law that did this. Now, that's not to mention that uh, that the so-called Civil War um the idea that that war was fought over slavery was first a lie that the confederate government used as propaganda and the union government said no it's not it's not about slavery it's not about slavery lincoln said over and over it's not about slavery it's not about slavery it's about keeping the union together it's about uh, maintaining the uh, the tariffs on the south lincoln made this abundantly clear in his inaugural inaugural address that any, any war activity that took place between the Union and the South was not going to be about slavery. It's going to be strictly about um, maintaining the tariffs on the South. And the tariffs went from something like, um, I think they were at, at one point, they were like 7 or 8%. They went up to like 15%. And then Lincoln was going to push them up to like 30%. And that's when the th- southern states started breaking off was over this tariff. Now, again, the Confederacy lied, and they said it's about slavery. Lincoln's trying to take away your slaves. But that was not what it was about. And Lincoln put a lot of effort into saying this is not what it's about. It's about holding the Union together, and it's about collecting the tariff. Now, if the South had been honest about this, uh, they would have been in a better position. Of course, the South were statists too, so what do you expect? The statists is going to lie. Statists lie. That's what they do. Okay, now uh, the next section you're going to hear, the host is going to use the fallacy cherry-picking. He's going to present horrible historical distortions, and then he's going to build himself into a frothing anger. But you're going to hear Michael call him out on that. Let's watch this.
1: Isn't that right, Michael? Isn't that right? You sound really angry. I am angry. angry. I am angry at people who support the overdog. I am angry at the people who support the man with
0: wealth and... Ooh, who's the overdog? Angry at people who support the overdog. Who's the overdog? The government or the individual? Who's the overdog? Those who wish to control the collective or individuals who are forced by everyone else to be a part of the collective? Who's the overdog? Who's the one willing to use aggression, willing to kill if necessary? Keep in mind, Abraham Lincoln was directly responsible for the deaths of more Americans than any other human being that's ever lived. More people died in Lincoln's war than in wars like the Vietnam War and World War I and World War II. More than those combined were killed by Abraham Lincoln's decisions to go to war to force people to stay within the Union, force them to stay within the, the monopoly of aggression. That Lincoln was the head of. So, um, so who is supporting the overdog? See, uh, let's get into some more of his fabrications here. Um, he gets in. Well, uh, we'll just let him speak for himself.
1: Power and guns against the man with none of those things. You're right. I am angry. Well, what
2: I would have done was with, with slavery is instead of saying the government needs to point guns at everyone's head, I would have armed the slaves. How would and you, and you do that?
1: To you don't have to believe in government. You ha- who would get, who would buy the guns? There's
0: no government to buy them, right? Who would build the roads? Who would buy the guns for the slaves? Uh, Who would pick up the garbage? You could also make the argument that, um, you know, it's been said before that uh, how, how, how would a grocery store work? If the, if the government wasn't there forcing it to, to behave like it does, well, that's not a valid argument. Grocery stores are not forced by the government. Well, they were in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, uh, you know, all the businesses like that were government-controlled. So the food was distributed through government means. And there's an old joke. Um, there's two Soviet women are standing in line for bread. And one of them says to the other, you know, I hate standing in line so long for bread. I remember when I was younger, we didn't have to stand in line so long for the bread. And the other woman says, well, at least you're not in America. And she says, well, what what do you mean by that? She says, well, in America, the government doesn't even supply bread. You see, in her way of thinking, if the government doesn't supply it, there's no way you can get it. That's, That's the Soviet way of thinking. But in fact, in America... There's no shortage. You don't have to wait in line. You just go buy it. You see, the government doesn't supply it. Therefore, there's no shortages and there's no overruns. But the, the status doesn't understand that, doesn't see it. They can only see, if the government doesn't give it to me, where can I get it? Well, the silly part about this is, when you're talking about arming guns, John Brown did a heck of a job arming, arming slaves. He did a heck of a job uh, getting donations, getting volunteers. This is exactly what John Brown was doing when the government killed him. John Brown was attempting to arm the slaves, and he had a lot of support to do it, and it wasn't government support. And if the government hadn't killed him, it could easily be argued that John Brown would have been the one to free the slaves, if you can put it all in one great man like that, which is not really all that logical. But if you're going to go with the great man theory, and if you're going to go with that, then you have to say that it was the government that killed John Brown and stopped him from arming the slaves. He was doing a pretty good job of it on his own. Now, what we see here with with this ranting that the host does, we see the typical cartoon version of history that is taught by government schools. It's important to never let your opponent get this far in manipulating the conversation. Once they start popping back and forth, dodging questions, changing the subject, and cutting off your argument – um, there's really no profit in continuing now that's not uh, again that's not a um uh, a complaint against michael here uh, radio is different than a real conversation in the sense that the host has complete control of the conversation at all times now you you think about that compared to an actual discussion between two people nobody in a conversation would allow the other person in the conversation just to dominate them and yell shout them down and so forth like that it, you know you would just say I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be spoken to like this. But you know, in a radio situation, you don't have much of a choice. Think about um, think about text debates on the internet. You know, um, it, when once they devolve into a shouting match and name calling and accusations start flying and the subject starts getting changed, you know, back and forth, back and forth like that, and questions are dodged. There's no. There's no use in going on with it. An actual debate doesn't function like that an actual debate uh each side is given time to explain themselves without constantly being shouted down and constantly being walked over so let's get back here
2: private private people from canada and the northern states there were a lot of guns lying around but the first gun control laws were to keep freed slaves
1: from being right, we'll be back we, we got michael dean he's gonna stick with us we'll be back boom, boom, boom. All right, we're talking about freedom, what it means with Michael Dean. Freedomfiends.com is the website. Freedom, F-E-E-N-S dot C-O-M. Now, Michael, your proposal for eliminating slavery is, I guess, individuals go down and arm the slaves, and then they're, they all start killing each other, uh, the, the, the owners and the slaves. Um, I obviously have a different take. Uh, my question to you is, Uh, How can you and I agree uh, beforehand on what metrics we will use?
2: Um, Well, if you want to go back, an example would be uh, slavery, to continue on that for the metrics, is a good example. Basically, you're arguing, like, we need to keep some of the slaves because the cotton will never get picked. And I'm saying that's not the question. You have to eliminate slavery, and the market will take care of the cotton getting picked. And they did, and it did.
1: Well, wait, I, I'm not arguing that. We should eliminate slavery. We should eliminate slavery because it's wrong, it's immoral, it's cruel, it's inhumane, not because there may be an alternative way of picking cotton.
2: Taxes are slavery. And people who like the government and believe it's a good thing. Want to keep the soft slavery, and they won't consider ways that the cotton could get picked without the taxation, the guns to the head, and the bureaucrats.
1: Well, I I, I I I think you've totally gone off track, as far as I can understand. I mean, you're saying that taxes are create create slaves. I guess is that your theory? Is that right? So
2: taxation is soft fl- slavery. Is yeah.
1: slavery is where you have to work without getting paid for it, correct? That's when you do work and you have no you don't have control yeah, over your much- you have no control over the your the output of your labor and you also don't get compensated for it. It also generally means you have right, little tactician. or no you have no little or no freedom of movement. None of that that
2: that's we're headed no, towards limited or no, no
1: of movement. No, you when you work in our society you get paid for it. You can move around and, um, and, and, and and, and you have a choice and you have a choice whether to work or not if you choose not to work tragically the choice to the extent that we're slaves it's it's that's too many of us if we don't work far many more hours than most people feel comfortable working uh, we could starve we could go without health care our children could suffer to me that's slavery that's where our employer well,
2: slaveholders- Slave owners provided food and basic medical needs for their slaves because it was economically viable to do so. Because a sick slave couldn't work.
1: That's right, but an old sick slave usually was left to die. A lame sick slave or a lame slave was often left to die. A slave who was too recalcitrant to work was generally killed. Now those are not really, or, or, or if they weren't broken, they would often be killed. I don't know how any of that is relevant to what you're talking about.
0: Okay, now I cut out some of that for time purposes because we are about to run out of time here. Um, but I did want to point out some things. What a lot of people don't realize, well, first off, he just makes up his own definition for slavery. And it, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that Uh, slaves in the antebellum South oftentimes were paid, not always, but oftentimes were paid, especially uh, uh, very often house slaves were paid. Uh, Many slave owners gave Christmas gifts of cash to their slaves, especially uh, after very prosperous uh, harvest years. um, Slaves were allowed to own some kinds of property, including uh, almost anything that they legally purchased. Uh, with the money that they had because, like I said, most slaves were allowed to possess uh, money. Um, Slaves were allowed to keep the winnings from gamblings. There's uh, actually cases where slaves won lotteries and bought their own freedom. Um, So there's a lot of mythology involved in in slavery. Uh, If you recall, Harriet Tubman made the statement that she said, if I could have convinced more slaves that they were slaves... I could have freed thousands more. This was a former slave who had escaped, went to the North, and then eventually came back into the South and um, uh, helped smuggle slaves out of the South and up into Canada, and then later, uh, uh, you know, went into the South during uh, Lincoln's War and uh, did a lot of activity then. So if you just listen to the words of Harriet Tubman, A lot of the slaves didn't realize they were slaves. Now, this is not to say it's good. We can't take this kind of a view of of slavery like some kind of um, a Disney Uncle Remus type view of slavery. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. But it was not the way that these people like to make it out to be. Uh, You just can't run a business. Um, using, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the way, uh, Hollywood Westerns show, uh, the use of horses. If you actually, anybody who actually owns horses and understands, especially working horses, if you own, own working horses and then you watch the movies and the way they treat horses in the movies, you know, they would go out and ride them for like two hours at a hard run, pull into town with your horse uh, hop off of it, throw the reins around a a, a a post there, and go into the bar and sit down for an hour or whatever. Well, you do that very often, like once or twice, and you got a dead horse. You see this Hollywood version of how, um, and and in in a, in a similar sense, if you treated slaves the way these people want you to think that slaves were treated, you would either have your throat cut. Because remember, those slaves were in your house cleaning your house. They were cooking your food. They were raising your children. If you treated them like that on a regular basis, you'd get your throat cut. And it happened. That happened. Sometimes they were treated horribly. And sometimes the master got his throat cut, or his barn burned, or any number of things could happen. So these people were not just helpless, childlike people sitting around waiting to be beaten or whatever. That's very disingenuous to uh, to place uh, the the slaves in that kind of a uh, of a to draw them in that kind of caricature and it is important at that point um, to point out that it's not really uh, it's not really a matter of you know what degree of slavery is moral and what degree of slavery is immoral the fact that you have one group of human beings owning and telling the other group of be- human beings uh, how much of their own money they can keep, how much of their possessions they can keep, whether or not they can travel, whether or not they can go about freely or if they have to show papers constantly. This is an indication of whether a person is slavery. And, it's, it, and the morality of it is not based on the degree to which the slave is treated. Now, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up at that. Um, the most of the rest of this is, uh, just the host turning to pure fantasy, uh, uh, anyway, so it's not really, I mean, if you want to listen to it, that's fine. Uh, I'll provide a link in today's show notes and, uh, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But the host continues to talk over Michael, doesn't allow him to answer questions, cuts him off, um, uh, makes contradictory claims at one point. At one point, he says that we are all the government, and then he says that Mitt Romney is not the government. Um, He attempts at one point to say that uh, prior to Lincoln's war, there was no law in the South. What? What? um misunderstanding he 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 shows very clearly that he doesn't understand the future of slave law he he thinks that was the government putting that upon the South, when in fact that was that was the government forcing northern non-slave states into behaving in a satisfactory way for the slave owners. So he gets that all completely messed up. And then he goes off and talking about unions, and he clearly doesn't understand that unions were very powerful before the government interfered. And, he, and, um, and a good example of that, if you read uh, Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain, Uh, Mark Twain goes into talking about how the unions were among the riverboats, and this is when there was no law at all regarding any of this stuff. It was all the unions, very powerful unions, uh, controlling an industry. And no government interference in one way or the other in how the unions did their business. So using the unions as an excuse for government is is a completely invalid thing. We're going back to who would build the roads. Okay, well folks, thanks very much for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, folks.